Uh, good morning to you. First, I'd like to thank uh, the elders of this church for allowing me to take the pulpit. Now, it's not really appropriate to sort of say, can I uh, use your pulpit? But uh, I need to ask the elders because I have an assignment to submit in. And this is the preaching assignment I have in my course in Ridley Bible College. So, thank you elders for allowing me to do so. And I'll say that uh, if there's any errors we or shortcoming in this message, it's not their fault. <laughs> so, yeah. so may the word of my mouth, the meditation of our heart, be acceptable, acceptable to the Lord our God. Amen. Now we have heard Psalm 19 read to us. It's a beautiful psalm. And it's a complete psalm and maybe to add anything more to the psalm is really irrelevant. We can actually read it and meditate it and the Lord will can richly bless us. But it's such a beautiful psalm and I'm privileged to share this. A beautifully composed psalm. Do you remember the time when you out maybe away from the city like and it is a dark cloudless night and you happen to look at the stars the words of this psalm just leap out from my heart the heaven declare the glory of God that you know you see the stars hanging there don't you have that feeling and and perhaps that was the feeling of King David who wrote this psalm perhaps remembering his days when he was a shepherd in the field. King David was a shepherd boy and perhaps when he was actually taking care of the sheep in the dark night and he probably lay on his back and he looked at the heaven and this sort of crushed him and said, you know, the heaven declare the glory of God. It is a psalm which we actually can use to praise the Lord in our private and I always say that uh, if you are in a beautiful place and you enjoy the scenery, read this psalm out and it will bless you. Now, the psalms can be appreciated from... Also, if you are a seeker, you are an intelligent seeker and you have not actually committed your life to Christ. And you're wondering, you know, you may come to church and you, you say, yeah, you know, I come to church, enjoy the church fellowship, but not really having committed to Christ. And you think that, uh, you know, the, 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 the claims of Christianity does not hold enough truth for you to actually commit yourself to Christ. And good to question that you really need to question what you believe. The psalmist here can give you three body of evidence if you are a seeker, and I will go through that. Now, in your heart, you may be questioning these four questions which we normally have. The question of origin, where do we come from? The question of ethic, what is right and what is wrong? And how do we know that? 
And why there is such universality? Uh, it's a universal feeling that everybody have the same kind of base of knowing what is right and what is wrong. Why? The question of meaning for life. What's the meaning of life? The question of destiny. Where do we go after we die? Or where do history, how will history of this time, how will it end? So the four questions we often struggle when we switch off the light before we sleep sometimes we think of one of these questions or all these questions together. And I think the psalmist here have an answer to it. To answer these questions. Now for the believers who already know the Lord can I suggest that sometime when a person asks, can you tell me about what you believe? Psalm 19, I find, is one of the passages of the Bible where you can read and go through with them to explain the gospel. So it's like what we had previously, the four spiritual law, the track. And if you don't have that, why don't you use Psalm 19? And if I go through that and portion it out, maybe you can use that to share the gospel and be a blessing. Even our dream to be a blessing to the, to the nation, to, to, to the people around us. When you know Psalm 19 and read to them and to explain the gospel, God's plan for us through Psalm 19, maybe the Lord can put a seed into their heart which will grow up and bring forth the fruit of salvation. All right. So, it has relevant for both if you are a seeker and also if you already have come to know the Lord. This psalm could be a blessing for all of us. Now, it becomes clear that the psalm can be conveniently divided into three part, three portions. From verse 1 to verse, 16, uh, verse 6, it says, Creation, proclaim the Creator, God. From verse 7 to verse 11, the scripture reveals God's will and God's mind. And from verse 12 to 14, our innermost conscience or our innermost voice reveals the longing for God, our struggle, and later it ends it with what should be the rightful response. What should be the rightful response? Now, it's, it's a good beginning to begin with creation from verse 1 to verse 6. The heaven declared the glory of God. The sky proclaimed the work of His hand. When the psalmist sees creation, the world around here, he just saw God. He knows there's God behind that. And it's the most logical conclusion. But I do know that of the last hundred years, this view is hotly contested. In this time of what we call science, advance of technology and education, this view that behind creation is the creator God is hotly contested. We are taught in our school that you see a painting, you presume that there's a painter behind that. If you read a book, there must be an author. If you see a machine, like maybe a watch, there must be a maker. And you tell the teacher, no, there is not a painter, nor an author, nor a maker. They say, please, get out of this class. 
is not logical. But when it comes to creation, something more sophisticated, so beautiful and complex and complicated, we have to change our thinking and say, no, it is all randomness, chance, matter, energy, time, you get creation. We have to change our thinking of logics so dramatically. And you tell them, can we apply the same back to the wash, the machine, the book, or the painting? They say, no way. I'll not ask them, why? Why not? Why should I change my logic of thinking from one to another? Perhaps in that is our answer. Now, some of you may be more in the journey, knowing more about sciences, and and uh, compared to me, uh, I do have some degrees, which is maybe irrelevant, but maybe I'm only in the bottom rung of this thinking. The, 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 and maybe you think that those who are higher at the top of the, tea, of the tree think differently, and therefore I could not speak with authority on this subject. So may I quote to you some from the top of the tree. And of course, we have the Google. And if you want, you can the name I will speak out, you can go and Google and get your information firsthand. All right. Stephen Hawking. I'm sure all of us know Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking, ending his talk in London, I think it was around the early part of 2000, after he written the book, A Brief History of Time. After ending his talk about cosmology, how the world began and all that, he says this, Yes, it does seem that the universe is determined. But since we do not know what it is determined for, we must else forget it. What mean to say that, yes, looking at creation, looking at the forces, physics-wise and all that, that creation seems to be designed, determined designed by somebody. But since we do not know what it is designed for, let's forget that question. That's coming from Stephen Hawking. Now, I have to read this. Stephen Hawking is not a Christian. I will quote another person who is not a Christian. He is an agnostic at the most. His name is David Belinsky. David Belinsky is the fellow of Discovery Institute of Science and Culture in America. And he wrote a book in response to Stephen... Uh, um, Who's the one who told the God's delusion? The person who wrote God's delusion. Uh, now, it's, but anyway, there's a book by an atheist uh, who wrote the book The God Delusion. A famous atheist. Who? Richard Dawkins. Yes. Sometimes you hear you just. All right, Richard Dawkins. He wrote the book uh, The God Delusion, and in response to him, this scientist David Belinsky wrote. The Devil's Delusion. And this is one of his quotes. Alright? I will read to you. 
Has anyone provided proof of God's inexistence? Not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why is it here? Not even close. Have our sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. Are the physicists and the biologists willing to believe in, every, in anything so long as it is not religious thought? Close enough. Has rationalism and moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good, what is right, and what is moral. Not close enough. Has secularism in the terrible 20th, 20th century been a force of good, not even close to being close? Is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy in the sciences? Close enough. Does anything in the sciences or their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is irrational, not even in the ballpark? And lastly, it says, is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt? Dead on. Dead on. What it means to say is that We may have a bulk of evidence pointing to a logical conclusion that there must be an intellectual design behind the world. But if the scientist will come up with even the very weirdest or the theory that may not hold water for a time, but that must be right. You know what I mean? And they come up with more and more theory and zooming on that theory than looking at what the evidence says. It is definitely an intellectual contempt. Contempt. That's from not from the Christian thinkers. But there are Christian thinkers too. Dr. John Leonard, a mathematician, and he goes around lectures, and among the time he have, he had a debate with Peter Stinger. Peter Stinger is an Australian atheist, and he liked to debate on that there's no creator. But you Google. Dr. John Leonard's debate with Peter Stinger and you can see John, Dr. John Leonard pin him on the wall. Dr. John Leonard, he is a mathematician from uh, who taught in Oxford. One of them Oxford, or Oxford. The next one, Dr. John Pockingham. Now, John is a good name. That's why my son, I named him John. <laughs> Dr. John Pockingham. Pockingham. He is a physicist who actually was uh, lecturing in Cambridge. One of them Cambridge, one of them offered all top of the trees. He lectures and he's the one who says that the, the fine-tuning of the universe between the strong forces and the weak forces have to be so finely tuned 
that he give an illustration that the need to actually you have to throw a dart at an, a target which is a hundred million light year away and the dart must hit bull's eye. That kind of fine tuning for the world, for the earth to hold together. Dr. John Pockingham later took a different calling in his life from lecturing physics in Cambridge or Oxford to actually be a minister for God's word. Dr. John Pockingham. Another name you want to Google. Dr. Francis Collin, who led the team to be the first to, to map the human genome, genetics, top of the tree. He is a Christian believer. And he actually saw the beauty within the gene. God as the creator. So, even if I could not make you to really come to near to actually accept that God is the creator and you think that is is still a journey, at least you might accept that among serious thinkers in the top of the tree, there are thinkers who actually believe that God, that's the creator and he is God. At least you must accept that there are thinkers who are serious, who are capable thinkers, way beyond us, who still can hold that God is a creator and it's no shame to hold on that view. Now, that is the first body of evidence which the psalmist led us to from verse 1 to verse 6. The second body of evidence is found in from verse 7 to verse 11. It says here, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the law are trustworthy, making wise the simple. And it goes on to say how beautiful and beneficial God's words is. When you say God's law here, the psalmist doesn't mean just the Ten Commandments. It means to him probably the Pentateuch which Moses writes. It is the scripture. The scripture, not just the Ten Commandments. The whole scripture. Now this is something which we, another body of evidence which we can point our friend or or you if you are seeking to look at is in your hand. And you can look at it. When I will tell my friend, my golfer friend about the Bible, they say, ah, the Bible, I've read them. They didn't, actually. Uh, It's written by man. Yes, it's written by man. But let us put a few facts together. How the Bible came, came to be. We know that the Bible is written by more than 40 different authors coming from different, different backgrounds. From king to shepherd to administrator to fisherman. All kind of background. 40 different authors. And they are not existing. They are not living at the same period of time. Is spread over 1,400 years or so. It's written over 1,400 years or so. It consists of books of different genre. You have historical book. You have the song, like we read the psalm, it's a song. You have prophecies. 
And you have proverb which tells us about wise, wise uh, wisdom. And you have the cry of the heart of people going to trouble, job. And you can identify with that cry of the heart. It is a tremendous book. Written over 1,400 years in three continents by 40 different people. We would expect that such a production of literature, it's a library of books, will have a fragmentation of thoughts. The thought will be going everywhere. But one of the beauty of the Bible we have here is the unifying thoughts of God and God's plan, revealing who God is. That is the beauty, that is the unity there. And when we read about prophecy, we have seen how this prophecy already had been foretold and this prophecy happened with exactness of how it is supposed to be. And that makes this book transcend from just a human inspiration or a human observation, transcend that there must be somebody behind this which is divine, which knows the futures or in control of the future. So this book, you have not only look at creation, now you have to deal with what, how is this book come to being. That is the second body of evidence the psalmist gave. And you can take it through with your friends about this, even you share the gospel. And finally, the third body of evidence, which may be a little bit subjective, but I feel this is the most testable evidence that God is. And this is the most precious and meaningful one. It is found from verse 12 to 14. 12 to 14. Who can discern his error? Forgive my hidden fault. Keep your servant also from willful sin. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great, great transgression. May the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. From looking out, at creation to looking at the word of the Lord the psalmist asks now look within yourself look within yourself and find the truth within yourself isn't there a longing for eternity isn't there a, a, a pain of the fallenness of sin isn't there a void in your heart a void which need to be felt. And you must honestly face that. Face that. So the psalmist asked us to face that. There is an imperfection. When you see all the beauty around us and all that, but there is an imperfection in, exist, in existing in existence with us. There is an imperfection. And the imperfection is sin. Sometimes, somehow, he brought sin into the picture. 
from the beauty of creation, we have something very personal and very ugly, sin. A few things he points us is that the psalmist do not point out sin, the sin of other people. It doesn't matter. He says what? My sin. That's very important. He says, who can discern his error? Forgive my hidden fault. The psalmist goes to the extent that even if I do not know some of the fault I have, surely there must be fault which people can see and I need you to also touch that. He knows he's a sinner and he knows that is where the problem is. That's where his struggle is. He knows he's a sinner. And he knows he has to handle the sin which is within him. Within him. Sin. That is the imperfection. The only imperfection and the most grievous and threatening imperfection of the whole of God's creation. But where does salvation come from? Salvation come from. Where does salvation come from? Does it come from us trying to improve ourselves? No. The psalmist in verse 12 and 13 gave us all the elements. To me, I look at all the elements there and in the right order. He says again, I will read, Who can discern his error? Forgive my hidden fault. Keep your servant also from willful sin. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. The first thing is to admit, to humble himself, to admit that yes, he is the sinner. He sinned. He sinned. To admit that, he say, that is the first step. That's the first step to the path of restoration, salvation. Next, he humbled himself to ask for forgiveness from God. He hum- asked God to forgive him. Not only we admit that we are sinners and say, yes, I'm a sinner, but I cannot do anything about it or whatever. After admitting as a, him as a sinner, he asked for God's forgiveness. And this is the great theme of our Christian teaching. Forgiveness from God. It's the theme which is repeated over this pulpit over and over again. And during our communion, we always bring forth this theme of God as our Savior who forgives us. Forgiveness, forgive. Forgive. That is the greatest theme in our Christian teaching. And the psalmist called that too. He said, God, you have to forgive me. And God can forgive us. The psalmist may not see it then, as we see it, of how Christ played the part in the scheme, the whole scheme of God's forgiving us. He may see the Messiah as a distant but we now see as a fool. Christ pay, pays for our sin. And through that, God forgives us. God forgives us. So, first he humbled himself by admitting he's a sinner. Next, he humbled himself to ask for forgiveness from God. And third, and this is a very important element of it, to make it 
credible. There is a prayer from him to be rid of his sinful way. Many of the track we have is that we stop before that. A real repentance will include a prayer to be restored in our rightful way. It's not that we will actually achieve it, but definitely the desire to turn from sin does not just mean turning from the judgment of sin, but turning from the ways of sin. So he come with the prayer straight away. I'm a sinner. Forgive my sin. Help me to sin no more. And this is the journey. The whole package. The whole deal. So people cannot turn and say, you Christian was just trying to get away by the easy way of the judgment of sin by saying, Jesus died for my cross, I'm free from sin. Okay, that's it. No. We must continue with the prayer to be rid of sin, to be restored, to glorify God. So this is the psalmist package. So if you, I find that this is a complete package. And if you are a seeker, think of this thing. And a way to respond. The psalmist allow us a way to respond too. And if you actually in need of a passage to share what you believe, this could be a passage. Psalm 19 could be a passage. A total package. So, I hope that the word of my mouth and the meditation of our heart have been something which the Holy Spirit could have been is used now and maybe a seed deposited will bear fruit. I pray to the Lord. Shall we pray? Our Father God, we always recognize, I always recognize that there's so much inadequacy and inhuman to actually bring forth your thought in clarity which which you can do. But we thank you for the agency of your Holy Spirit through your word convicting us deeply of our sins and our restoration and the path to honor you and to glorify you. So that, dear Lord God, we can be transformed so that we creation, creation will look at your people and say, this body of Christ gives you glory. We pray for this, dear Lord God, that our path will continually be praying for it and working with you together for your glory. We thank you this morning, dear Lord God, for your word. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.